Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud, and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Hello, diet culture dropouts. It's so nice to be back. Welcome back to All Fired Up. I haven't gone anywhere. I've just been deep down a rabbit hole researching for the following two episodes, diving into the world of big pharma. Have I got two cracking episodes for you to help you celebrate the festive season. Uh, Diet culture, as you know, is in its high point slash low point right now. And I'm super cranky about Big Pharma. Uh, So for the next two episodes, you're going to discover exactly why I am so mightily fired up. But first, I want to talk about some free stuff. If you haven't already downloaded this, I have a free ebook written by me and the wonderful Dr. Fee Willer anti-diet dietitian and guest in today's episode. This ebook is called Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit. And it is busting the, the top 10 diet myths that are floating around our culture like bad smells. If you are looking for a resource to help you dive into the science of why weight loss efforts ineffective and harmful please go to untrapped.com.au. It will pop up. You can download it. You can give it to friends, family, uh, medical people. You can even pop it in people's Christmas stockings if you feel like it. But it is wonderful. It is completely free. More free stuff. If you are struggling at the moment uh, with all of diet culture's messaging about pursuing weight loss, Uh, and you're finding it really hard to feel okay in your body, look no further than my Befriending Your Body free e-course. It is available on my Insta account, which is untrapped underscore AU, and you can click on the link to get the free e-course. This helps you learn self-compassion skills, which, in my opinion, learning the skill of self-compassion is your single mightiest weapon in befriending your body and keeping the dragons of diet culture at bay. So what you get is a 10-day email series. So you get a little email from me every day uh, talking you through uh, different aspects of self-compassion and relating to your body, helping you to kind of come home to your body because let's face it, diet culture is a massive disconnector. So those are the free things. Uh, I want a huge, massive shout out to the lovely Untrapped online community. Untrapped is my online anti-diet course and group and community. We're about to go on retreat, uh, which is so exciting because this has been booked since 2020. And finally, after years of waiting, we finally get to connect in real life. I'm very excited. If you are looking for a community for really a deep dive into unpacking your relationship with food, with joyful movement, with your body, and look no further, come and join us at Untrapped. You can find out more about the community and the course at untrapped.com.au. We'd love to have you. And who knows, maybe next year you can come on retreat with us. Okay, so to, d- to today's episode, uh, as I said, I'm completely fired up. I'm, I'm wild and outraged. 
completely and utterly outraged about Big Pharma and the stranglehold that it has on diet culture, especially right now. I have two wonderful guests for you today. The first is Dr. Fee Willer, anti-diet dietitian and aforementioned co-author of the Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit free ebook. Fee uh, is an academic and lecturer, a speaker, a prolific writer, and just a brilliant brain, a complete skewer of uh, weight science. If you haven't already uh, gone and visited her website, Health Not Diets, please go do so. If you're a health professional, uh, she's got so many resources on uh, training and various aspects of learning more about weight science and how to understand it, unpack it and push back against weight bias. It's terrific. Uh, She also has this really good podcast called Unpacking Weight Science. And she has a really good episode on weight loss drugs, which I highly recommend. If you're really interested in today's topic, go listen to Fee's uh, specific podcast on weight loss drugs because it is sensational. So I'm very happy to talk to Fee. And my other wonderful guest today is Reagan Chastain, who has been on the show before. I'm so excited that she's coming back. Reagan is from Dancers with Fat. She is a speaker, writer, dancer, marathoner, health coach, and just all around awesome human. Reagan has written some really fantastic uh, blogs on the topic of weight loss drugs and the influence of big pharma in our culture right now. I strongly suggest that you go and find her and follow her and follow her newsletters that come out on this because it's it's just absolutely brilliant. So we have a terrific two-parter coming up for you. The first is on weight loss drugs and the dastardly history of what they've been uh, doing to our planet since the 1990s. And our second one is unpacking the octopus of Novo Nordisk and its uh, current mission to soak the planet with diabetes drugs for weight loss. Now, there are lots of O words in the next two episodes because it's kind of impossible to talk about this without using O words, but make it very clear to all my listeners, I do not agree with the the term obesity. I think it uh, is an unnecessary pathologizing, medicalizing word that big pharma are using to create a disease from diversity which in my opinion is a crime. But just so you know, there are lots of O words. Something else I need to say before we get started with the next two episodes, I guess it's a disclaimer about absolutely no judgment here, everybody. On All Fired Up, I'm talking and ranting with people around the world about the influence of diet culture and its constant pressure on all of us to become smaller. The diet drug industry, weight loss drug industry, directly target fat people. And as we know, weight stigma impacts larger bodied people in a different way uh, to the impact that diet culture has if you're a thin person. So I'm presenting this episode and the next one in an effort to illustrate the pharmaceutical industry's influence on the very way we think about body size. I have no judgment towards people who might be being treated terribly or being denied medical Um, intervention because of a BMI range. And I understand the pressure that you're under to shrink your body in order to access certain things. So I have no judgment towards people who make these choices to take these drugs. That's, I'm not intending to do these episodes to judge anyone except the industry itself. But I do believe in informed consent 
I do believe that um, a lot of the time we're not told the full background story and we don't get to dive into the research as much as we're going to today. I'm a big promoter of critical thinking and I think that we need to kind of see, evaluate and make up our own minds about what we're going to do with our bodies given what we know about the companies and the influences that are shaping this. So it's really good to be back and I hope you enjoy the show. Diet culture constantly sells us diets or lifestyle changes, introducing physical restriction. But weight loss drugs take things to a whole new level. Taking pills or injecting drugs into our bodies impacts directly our physiology, our organ function, our cardiovascular system, our endocrine system, our brain function. This is serious stuff. We'd love to think that because drugs are regulated and prescribed by doctors, that we're protected, that we're safe. And if you want to continue to think that, I might advise you to hit pause right now because the history of weight loss drugs will seriously burst that bubble. So before I introduce my wonderful guest today, I'm going to tell you a little story about the disastrous history of FenFen, one of the earliest weight loss drug crazes, which really highlights just how much drug companies who profit from selling weight loss drugs are influencing things from behind the scenes. We're going to head back to 1979 to meet Lou Lasagna, a physician and chairman of the University of Rochester's Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology, freshly opened university department which had been crowdfunded by the pharma industry. In 1980, Lasagna had written one of the first public treaties on his idea of obesity as a chronic disease. Thanks for the fat phobia, Lasagna. At the time, drug company A.H. Robbins' drug fenfluramine, which was brand name Pondamine, was a pretty lacklustre diet drug on the market. Fenfluramine is a serotonergic anti-seizure medication, which has an anorectic or uh, appetite reduction effect. And it comes with a full-on startling list of side effects, including hives, difficulty breathing, swelling of your face, lips, tongue or throat, mood changes, anxiety, panic attacks, trouble sleeping, impulsive behaviour, irritability, agitation, hostility, aggression, restlessness, hyperactivity, worsening depression, thoughts of self-harm, chest pain, pounding heartbeats, shortness of breath, blue coloured skin or lips, swelling in your legs, unusual tiredness, weakness, lightheadedness, loss of appetite, worsening seizures, blurred vision, tunnel vision, eye pain, pounding in your neck or ears, nosebleed, hallucinations, fever, sweating, shivering, fast heart rate, muscle stiffness, twitching, loss of coordination, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Benfluramine was developed in the early 1960s and was first introduced for medical use as an appetite suppressant in France in 1963. And then it was approved in the US in 1973. And according to legend, Mike Weintraub, who was one of Lasagna's research protégés, was stuck in an airport due to a snowstorm and he was just about to present a conference paper about diet drugs. And he began thinking about what he thought to be the biggest drawback of pondamine, sleepiness, and he wondered what would happen if people took a stimulant like another diet drug, something like fentamine, eureka, 
Phentamine was at the time approved as an appetite suppressant in the US and it had been since 1959. Phentamine is primarily a norepinephrine releasing agent and it also induces the release of serotonin and dopamine. Uh, basically, phentamine kind of acts like speed, like it's an upper. Lasagna floated the idea of doing a research study combining the two drugs, phentamine and fenfluramine, fenfen, to the A.H. Robbins Company. And according to a December 1979 company memo, the pharmaceutical division believes that a positive outcome of this study will produce a significant increase in fenfluramine sales. Note the complete lack of thought here about any potential harm, which is interesting. Because in the mid-70s, the A.H. Robbins company had encountered more than 300,000 lawsuits launched against them because of their Dalcon Shield birth control device, which was found to cause pelvic inflammatory disease, infertility, spontaneous abortion, septicemia, and death. As an aside, the Dalcon Shield disaster basically sent A.H. Robbins broke, and then they were acquired by American Home Products. The pharma world is full of stories like this. One company falls on its sword because of lawsuits, and then they get snuffled up by a big company. It's Game of Thrones. So eventually, Weintraub was given grants to investigate his brilliant drug combo idea. These were officially funded by the National Institutes of Health's National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, but there was also a lot of money thrown in from A.H. Robbins. According to Alicia Mundy's book, Dispensing with the Truth, the drug companies would suggest studies to get co-founded by the NIH, and then the government would come up with a grant. Because studies that are funded by NIH grants look a lot shinier and more plausible than the ones funded by drug companies. And to this day, we still don't know how much money was provided by the drug company. But uh, Weintraub wrote a lovely note to his patrons as his study drew to a close, which says, without your assistance and that of A.H. Robbins, the study could not have been undertaken on the budget that we had received from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. What a nice guy. So he did his study. How effective was FenFen? Well, at 34 weeks, the trial showed a 15% weight loss, but long-term results uh, at three years later showed that not only uh, half of the participants had dropped out, but also that they were regaining weight. Look, what is really striking about these studies is that this drug combination had never been tried in humans before. Normally, this kind of wild experiment would at least be tried on animals before throwing people into the mix. It also concluded that this was safe, in spite of about a quarter of participants reporting adverse events. Weintraub's study ran for four years, from 1983 to 87. But weirdly, it just wasn't published straight away, or maybe not weirdly, because this combo of drugs was not approved for use by the FDA, and drug companies were prohibited from promoting the off-label use of drugs. But then, in 1992, it did get published as a supplement in the Journal of Clinical Pharmacology. Supplements are usually paid for by sponsors, aka the drug industry. Many years later, during the court cases in the aftermath of the FenFen disaster, Weintraub admitted that industry money had paid for the supplement to publish the article. Sadly, he couldn't remember which company had paid him. Ah, industry money, where would we be without you? So, once word got out about FenFen via a press release from the University of Rochester, it went wild. 
In February 1995, Fen Fen was featured in women's magazine Allure and then in Reader's Digest. It was never technically approved by the FDA as a combo drug itself, but the doctors were prescribing it off-label, left, right and centre. Doctors began openly advertising the drugs in newspapers, on the internet, and it literally walked off the shelves. Storefront clinics even popped up in shopping malls. Jenny Craig was giving it out to their clients. And Nutrisystem were also offering it to their customers. Uh, unsurprisingly, demand was just unbelievable. But from a beautiful beginning, concerns really quickly appeared. Internationally, Hondamine was on the market in France. And a French study uh, called the International Primary Pulmonary Hypertension Study found that taking Hondamine or its sister drug, Redux, increased the risk of primary pulmonary hypertension by 10 times. And with longer duration of use, this risk went up even higher. Primary pulmonary hypertension is not fun. It's a type of high blood pressure that affects the arteries in the lungs and in your heart. It's incurable and can lead to death if it's not picked up quickly. It drastically impacts life expectancy. In August 97, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine by the Mayo Clinic revealed another 24 cases of unusual valvular disease in patients taking FenFen. As a result of these findings and another 75 cases of heart valve disease reported to the FDA, both Pondamine and Redux were withdrawn from the market on September 15, 1997. But not before the company, American Home Products, had turned a profit of $200 million. So that's quite a story to kick us off with. Am I right? Are you fuming? Well, believe it or not, that is just a taste of what is to come in this episode. Let's go and meet our two guests for this week who have even more torrid tales to tell. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here with Dr. Fee Willer and Reagan Chastain, all here because we're fired up about weight loss drugs. The world is at a point lately where we seem to be really embracing drugs and weight loss drugs, pharmacotherapy, whatever we want to call it, basically big pharma solutions to larger bodied humans. And the marketing at the moment of this approach to larger humans is it's everywhere. And I really wanted to do this episode because we need to just hold up a second and take a look back at what weight loss drugs have really done to the planet and figure out from there if what's going on is something that we can truly trust. So we're going to have a really deep dive uh, in this episode into all of the different weight loss drugs that have been approved since the 1990s and tell some stories and get some facts on what has happened because history seems like it could repeat itself. Reagan, can you talk a bit more about what you know about FenFen? Sure. So when it came on the market in 1992, originally it started as an off-label prescription and it was being prescribed based on a four-year study that only included 121 people. And four years, as we'll find as we go down these other drugs, is actually a pretty long time for a study to happen. But 121 people is such a tiny group. But still, by 1994, the company already knew that there were 41 cases of valvular heart disease and pulmonary hypertension. They only reported four of those to the FDA. Wow. Yeah. So this is a problem in the States of like how we gather data. Like if the company that's profiting off the drug is the one responsible for reporting the issues, then this is a repeated problem in, in the US that they don't have a big incentive to report 
report that honestly. So they reported these four in 94. By 95, the drug had become super mainstream. It was in fashion magazines and all over media. Um, and they estimated in 1996 that doctors wrote about 18 million prescriptions. Oh for my Femtech. God. <laughs> and then the next year in 97, research started to show that about a, a third of the patients had serious side effects. And the company eventually had to uh, pull the drug and paid billions in settlement, which again, uncommon that they actually were, had co- faced consequences to their actions that were serious to the company's bottom line. But obviously that those billions would never return the health and lives of the victims of the drugs, which were predictable pretty much from the beginning. In order to get on board with this idea of diet drugs as a quote-unquote treatment for people existing in higher weight bodies, you have to believe it's worth risking their lives and quality of life to make them even a little bit thinner. That's the only way that somebody could justify this. These are All of these drugs have incredibly serious side effects and those are considered acceptable risks. I have no words. Wow. I have a lot of them, but they're mostly swear words. So yeah, swearing is welcome. I read that the drug maker Wyeth had set aside $21 billion to settle all of the litigation, all of the lawsuits coming out of FenFen, which was only on the market for five years, right? Oh my God. Like that is like a catastrophic human cost. And it caused, so the original company that manufactured was called American Home Products. And so they actually, like it sort of, it essentially put them out of business, but they just went ahead and were acquired by another company as as pharmaceutical companies here do. But American Home Products itself, Fenfen was sort of the end of them. Oh, well, um, that's not sad in my opinion. No, <laughs> no. Okay. bye. I can't believe it was only five years that it was on the market. It really mm. felt like it was a lot longer than that, the kind of... The fallout. And the reputation and that, you know, that this the, this is now part of weight loss efforts history, I guess. Five years is such a vanishingly short time, really, to have been available but to have done so much damage. It wreaked havoc. And I mean, in a testament to how desperate people are to lose weight because of how much they've been misinformed that weight loss is the only way that they could possibly pursue health. And because it is at this point, one of the only ways to avoid weight stigma, people were clamoring for the drug and trying to get it illegally in in these states, trying to get it from other countries. Like people were still even knowing that this drug was killing people and that it had been pulled, people were still trying to acquire it. That's not surprising. It's it's devastating, but yeah, not not surprising. I mean, what is surprising that it was taken off the market because the statistics were so convincing and the lawsuits were piling up. I think that's the pattern here with the big pharma companies. It's it's getting things onto market really quickly without properly looking at long-term impacts, ignoring danger signals until it's way too late, and only taking stuff off the market when they're really like their backs are against the wall in terms of profit. You know, this is not actually about caring about humans. So our next one we want to talk about is Meridia or Subutramine, which is from Abbott. And this is, it's an SNRI. So it's a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So in humans, it inhibits your reuptake of norepinephrine. I just can't say that word. Norepinephrine. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to try and say it again and I won't. So norepinephrine, <laughs> yes, um, serotonin and dopamine. So it increases the levels of all of these. Apparently that helps increase satiety and the serotonergic action is thought to influence 
appetite. So it's similar in action to a tricyclic antidepressant. And this was approved in 1997 for weight loss in the United States and taken off the market in 2010. So that's 13 years on the market. That's a long time. Uh, And especially 1997, which is around when FenFen and that whole disaster was unravelling. It came off the market in 2010 after what they call a post-market trial. So this is after it's been released onto actually humans. Uh, They they do longer-term trials. They actually then find out what's the impact of this on human bodies. And it's called the Subutramine Cardiovascular Outcome Trial or SCOUT. And it demonstrated a 16% increase in cardiovascular events, basically your heart attacks, uh, strokes, cardiac arrest, really awful things like that. So people were having really bad heart problems and that's why they took it off the market. It was in Australia, Canada, China. Europe, Hong Kong, India, Mexico, New Zealand, Philippines, Thailand, UK, and the US. And it did get withdrawn here in Australia, I think, in 2010, but it's still available in some of those countries that I've just read out, which is pretty hideous. So strange that it has not been, it really wasn't marketed in the same way that the, the more recent ones or FenFen was marketed as well, much less aggressive, which is interesting. <laughs> Yes, I guess the marketing the marketing's less aggressive, but the resulting death from taking it is pretty much the same. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it's off brand for big pharma to um, oh, to mm-hmm. not completely drench the community in marketing for their drugs. We had a ton of marketing in the states, commercials and stuff like kind of chubby women walking around with plates but not eating the food kind oh, of thing. I, so really, yeah. well, I also. Well, in Australia, it's illegal to direct market to consumers, but I guess mm. it was just the awareness in the sort of medical field and in the health field, because we would get the ads, didn't seem as loud, basically. Yeah. The thing that strikes me about this, and as we talk about these drugs, like in 44 weeks, the average weight loss at most was 3.8 kilograms. Oh. Right. So that so for us here, and that's with constant therapy as opposed to intermittent. So in the States, that's like eight and a little bit less than eight and a half pounds. So we're risking heart disease for eight and a half pounds, an amount of weight I could lose right now with a loofah and a haircut, right? I don't need to risk heart disease to make that happen. And this is what consistently we are being asked to risk our lives and quality of life and health to lose a couple pounds, which makes absolutely no sense. The idea of these risk-benefit analysis analyses is really off kilter. It is ridiculous because the rationale for recommending weight loss is these long-term outcomes. And Mm. if that were true, they would actually have to show long-term outcomes with these drugs. But really what they're showing with such short-term sight here, oversight, is that it really was never about health. It was always about appealing to people's aesthetic proclivities or trying to really push people to believe that that's important under the guise of this health message. Mm. There's a complete disconnect with intention and outcome here. Actual health. I mean, one of the things that, you know, Obesity Inc. always bang on about is that being larger is bad for your heart. And uh, hello, excuse me, (laughs) is anyone looking at the impact on uh, hearts from taking these drugs? But that, you know, when I was researching for this episode, it's, it's stunning how the old clinical trials and research basically ignore health outcomes, focusing only on this, like, secondary marker of, of uh, weight reduction and, and no one no, I mean it's staggering to think that no one was really interested in the impact on heart until after it came out 
and then found something much worse. It's just absolutely astonishing. Such a bolted on assumption that weight is tantamount to health status. Proxy. Mm. Yeah, absolute proxy marker. And in fact, now, well, particularly in the US where a higher weight is deemed a disease status. And so that means the goalpost has completely shifted just boop, over there. There's not even any pretense of risk mm. factordom anymore over there. Uh, whereas in Australia, higher mm. body weight is not classified as a disease state. I mean, it really isn't. It shouldn't ever be. And what happened in the US is not right. But when you shift goalposts like that from risk status, like population, epidemiological, statistical associations to an individual viewpoint, to the one single data point, at which point that population data becomes actually completely irrelevant. That's what we've done here with weight status to the detriment of humanity, really. And it should be noted that in the States, the the AMA declaring obesity, quote unquote, to be a disease, the, the whole belief that being higher weight is now a, quote, chronic lifelong health condition was in extreme lobbying, a response to extreme yeah. lobbying hmm. by the weight loss and diet industry, including their creation. Essentially, they're taking every page they can out of the Purdue Pharma OxyContin playbook. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in the, mm-hmm. the episode about Wigovi um, or Wigovi, depending on where you live. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is a situation where this wasn't, it's not justifiable by the data. It simply mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. There, You can have two people of the exact same weight with very different health statuses, pe- two people of very different weights with the same health status. So using weight as a proxy for health is deeply problematic, mm-hmm. but considering simply existing at a higher weight to be a disease, regardless of actual, any kind of metabolic or other health measurement is not scientifically justifiable. I mean, it's, it's important not. to understand that. And the, the way mm-hmm. that I tend to explain it these days is that a disease has to have issue with physiology, the actual function part of a biological system, whereas BMI, weight, the mm. of course the diagnostic test for obesity is simply standing on the scales and being your height. Mm. So that's an uh, anthropometric test. That is a test of anatomy. It's not a test of physiology. It's like we're using head circumference as a disease designator where sure, head circumference, there's a range of head circumferences and sometimes being sort of at the further ends of the ranges can indicate that there might be some kind of issue there. But we don't stop at saying that the actual head circumference is disease. We go, oh, let's have a look at what might be going. Is there some sort of genetic issue? Is there, you know, what's happened with this person? Whereas when we diseaseify body weight, it stops a conversation. It stops mm. investigations. It stops curiosity about what might be going on for that person. It may not be anything. It might be something, but stopping there and causing and and you know treating that like a disease, not treating, but I mean like approaching that status as if it's a disease itself means that we're doing bad science. We're doing bad healthcare. We're doing bad bad rational thinking. Like it's just mm. stopping that conversation, and that's not fair to anyone. No, but that's exactly why we're here, right? It's diseaseifying body size leads to the pharma industry profiting hideously from doing horrible things, like Reagan's saying, in the name of, of health. The next one I want to talk about is Ali or Orlistat or Xenical. Have you heard of this one? I've just noticed, Lou, this is the one that I called Fat Shat. <laughs> 
Okay, so this was FDA approved in um, 1999 on prescription in the States and then in 2000, from 2007 in the States it's been over-the-counter and in Australia you can buy it over-the-counter. No, no matter what size you are, you can go to a chemist and get some fat chat. So can you describe to us what, what this wonderful health-enhancing drug is, Bea? So fat chat or all of that <laughs> is a medication or drug that you take when you eat and what it does is binds up the fat in the food that you've consumed so that your body can't get to it and break it up and absorb it inside the body because of course the gastrointestinal tract is just a tube we're kind of donuts humans because the gastrointestinal tract is still the outside of our body technically so the allostat or fat chat means that that fat from the food is it stays in your gastrointestinal tract now in our large intestine, our bowel, that's the last bus stop before exit. That is where water is reabsorbed from what's left of uh, what's been digested. Your gut bacteria mostly lives in the large intestine and it's pouring over what's left, kind of a bit like a rubbish dump with the last bits of it being processed. Energy will be created gas is created. That's where farts come from. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the large intestine, but it is not it's not used to having fat. Fat is usually absorbed much further upstream in the mm. small intestine. That's where that happens. So when there's fat still in the large intestine, those bowel bacteria become different kind of populations that we had. So it's different kind of bacterial action, different kind of farts, if you want to put it that way, different kind of populations are not necessarily healthy either. So there is a microbiome story in this as well. Mm. But really the lived experience of taking this drug is actually the most important thing because when you've got fat in the large intestine, your butthole is not really able to keep things in as much as it otherwise is able to because things are a lot more liquidy. So one of the main side effects of this drug is leakage. And do you mean, do you mean like sharting? I mean sharting, I mean oily uh, when, you're, when you're not expecting it to the point where, Reagan, just let me know prior to this episode that on packaging in the States it had take us take a pair of extra underwear with you when you take this drug, just in case. I mean, have you ever, <laughs> that's a pretty strong warning to not take the drug, right? So the assumption there is that because it's not making it into the body, that that will cause an energy deficit and then that person will lose mm -hmm. weight. But actually the body's pretty smart and appetite centres are such that they realise when they haven't absorbed enough energy and so it actually just increases the drive to eat a bit more in order to meet energy needs. So it's no effect. Plus you can poo your pants, you know, unexpected times. So mm -hmm. fantastic, fantastic outcome for that one. Get yours at any pharmacy near you. And this one hasn't been recalled. It has, uh, it's, it's, so, yeah, like, it's, it's still... not dangerous. It's ridiculous, basically. Mm -hmm. It's ineffective and smelly and, yeah. Thankfully, I mean, it's action, it stays in the gastrointestinal tract, right? So there's nothing actually makes it in the body. There's no effect on heart valves or liver function or any kind of metabolic function does not do that. It's really a kind of physical effect, if you want to put that, rather than a biological mm. or chemical effect, really. A bit, it's a bit chemical, but if you can think about it as a, as a physical effect, just like a sponge, basically. So in terms of long-term health risks, it's low. But mm -hmm. why would you waste your money? Well, this says um, side effects include back pain, sinus infection, soft stool, sinus abdominal, <laughs> no, abdominal pain, not supposed urgency. to snort it. You know? 
So it's not it. Uncontrolled anal seepage. Seepage, fatty, that's it. I forgot the word. Mm. Yes. Fatty or oily <laughs> stool, spontaneous bowel movements, kidney stones, severe stomach pain, liver disease, pancreatitis and kidney stones. So yeah. not without side effects. The pancreatitis is from overactivity of the pancreas creating the secretions that it tries to get rid of the fat in the uh, large intestine, all the emulsifying juices, basically. So that's where that will come from. Mm. I mean, you would have to take it for a long time to have those effects, but like honestly. Don't take it for a long time. Yes, exactly. May I mention the the approval process? Because this has got to be one of my favourites. It was approved based on a six-month study, and the study claimed that, quote, most people lost five to 10 pounds over six months. Now, (laughs) what's important to understand is they only started with 19 people. (laughs) And by the end, 10 had dropped out. Oh my God. Nine people lost four to six pounds more than the people who took a placebo. This is the entire, and this drug was approved based on this. When they finally did further studies, they found that people lost about 5.7 pounds more in a year than those who only dieted and exercised. And it sounds like a decent amount of that kind of leaked out of them, Yeah, which like, I always want to be like, when I talk about this, I want to make sure I'm never, ever shaming people with fecal incontinence, No, right? That's a real thing. There's no shame in that. But to take a pill that causes fecal incontinence in order to lose maybe five pounds with no no indication that you would keep it off for more than that year, that is where I have a huge problem. Just yeah. one of the many places. Yep. Oh, good lord! Where are we? This is where it's wild, isn't it? This is this is wild. So that that is one hell of a clinical trial you described there, right? It's <laughs> like human safety at its finest. Just looking looking at that kind of impressive stuff. So My experience about, of reading these uh, trials yeah. is always to think like, why did I work so hard in these research method classes? Like I could have just gotten a job for, uh-huh. you know, the diet industry doing exactly the opposite of what I learned. It would have been great. Man, like the nineties, yeah. Wild West when it came to like easy to get a clinical trial, obviously approved, get a uh, drug onto the market. So we've talked about three weight loss drugs so far, and two of them were withdrawn from market. Only only the um, Fat Chat one has survived. And then there was a really quite a long gap in approvals for weight loss drugs, which was, you know, a pleasant moment for the planet. Just in the wake of the devastation of Fenfen, because literally so many people died and the publicity was awful. So between 1999 and 2012, the FDA didn't approve any more weight loss drugs. They really lost interest and figured it was a stupid idea. But then you notice that uh, in between 2012 and 2015, a whole kind of pile of new weight loss drugs got approved. So specifically Belbeek, Kismia, Contrave, Saxenda, and now, of course, recently, Wigovi, Wigovi, Wigovi. <laughs> anyway, Wigovi. So what on earth is going on? I read this amazing investigation by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. They did an investigation between 2010 and 2015 in the United States. The drug companies put more than 60 million US dollars into lobbying and paying off the FDA and Congress uh, and to physicians and to medical organizations. So in the months before 2012, when things started to get approved again, officials had lots of meetings with members of the obesity industrial complex. So drug companies, weight loss companies, medical societies, and the weight loss academic. Uh, And this group, you'll never guess, even produced a consensus report 
which waxed lyrical about weight loss drugs and how much benefit they could be to societies. And you'll never believe it, these meetings were funded by the drug companies. In addition to these meetings, a huge amount of money has been poured into multiple pipelines by all of the drug companies, all with the aim of getting their drugs approved. So the drug money is being used to pressure Congress to sponsor the medical societies who dutifully began to release obesity treatment guidelines. And then these societies are spending huge amounts of cash themselves lobbying Congress with similar messages. So, for example, in America, the Obesity Society received $393,000 from drug companies between 2011 and 2015. And in November 2013, the Obesity Society issued a guideline urging doctors to diagnose and treat obesity at every medical visit. In 2013, the Endocrinologist Association got $3.2 million from the obesity drug makers. Uh, And in 2014, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists released new recommendations for diagnosing and treating obesity. And that group alone has spent nearly half a million dollars lobbying Congress. So in 2010, the FDA rejected um, two new diet drugs because they were concerned about cardiovascular risk. Not surprising given the recent history because they just removed Meridia from the market. But then the Senate stepped in in 2011 and had all of these meetings with the drug makers and big pharma. And then within six months, you'll never guess it, uh, new diet drugs started to get approved. So first there was Bellevue, which was approved in 2012. And then Kismia was approved. And both of them had separately been rejected by the FDA just two years earlier. And then uh, Contrave, which had also been previously rejected by the FDA, got approval as well. What do we think of this? Yeah, it's so Belvique is one of the, the drugs that we see a similar thing happen where the risks that showed up in the trial are the risks that ended up getting it pulled from the market. So it was not like these things were not predictable. And this is, again, a consistent thing with diet drugs. They also, Belvique did a thing that we're seeing more and more where they predicated risk on size. So Belvic was approved, but only for people with a BMI greater than or equal to 30 or patients who had a BMI greater than or equal to 27, but also had what they are calling a, quote, weight-related condition. And it's probably a subject for another day, but the diet industry has spent so much money creating studies that link being higher weight to health conditions in really dubious ways. And then it uses this mountain of evidence in these FDA risk-benefit approval analyses to say, see how terrible being higher weight is. Mm-hmm. That's why it's worth risk. It's worth killing or harming fat people to take these drugs mm-hmm. to lose very little weight. So like that is a, a big part of it. But yeah, so they kind of hopped on this train that we'll talk about more, I'm sure, of predicating risk based on size, which again says that people at the highest weights, their lives are the least valuable and the most riskable which is just pure weight stigma. There's no other way to justify that. Um, and this drug had serious side effects. It decreased white and red blood cell counts. It slowed heartbeat. It slowed thinking, heart valve issues, increased risk of cancer. Um, and it was federally controlled because of the possibility that it could be addictive. Oh my so God. It was really serious. Their study, again, in their research, about half their subjects dropped out mm-hmm. with no follow-up. Um, okay. The people who stayed lost like five to 10% of their initial weight within a year. At two years, they had all gained back about 25% of their weight. Now, what we see consistently is people lose weight in about the first year. And then in years two through five, they eventually gain back most or all of their weight, many gaining back more than they lost. 
And of course, nothing wrong with being fat or becoming fat or something seriously wrong with the healthcare intervention that has the opposite of the intended effect the majority mm. of the time. But this mm. is what we saw. And so what they did, and this is a trick you see so much in this type of research at the variable of weight gain was going straight up. At year two, they stopped counting and sort of pretended like it must have le- leveled off the minute they stopped watching it. Which Amazing. again, you will fail freshman research methods class if you do this, 100%. They do it all, all the time or they'll cease the trial at six months where weight loss is maximal and, and just assume it's going to be, you know, continue on in forever as, mm-hmm. as the lower weight. It is so maddening, so maddening. Um, Faye, what is Lorcarserene or Belvique? You've got a you've got a special name for it. I have called this one Brain Zap because its effect is on neurotransmitters. And in general, we don't really want to mess around with neurotransmitters if we don't really know the long-term outcome of that. Plus, if you have to take medications that affect your neurotransmitters to start with. So you may be on some antidepressant medication, lots of uh, types of medication to help reduce the symptoms of uh, conditions like bipolar disorder and ADHD. There's a whole heap of things that already mess around with brain chemistry. It is a very bad idea to put an extra type of neurotransmitter affecting drug in there. And so, yeah, it's, you know, hugely bad idea. It's got hallucinogenic properties. Whoa. <laughs> People developing um, psychosis. Oh, my God. What the hell, this is not, this is, is not the price that we should have to pay. To I, think I'd, I think I'd prefer to ship myself. Yeah, I feel like, I, I do feel like I'd be able to deal with that a bit better than completely losing my grip on reality because of a weight loss drug, yeah. Goodness. So we, this is the one that never got approved in Australia or the UK or Canada, but it was approved in 2012 and then withdrawn from the market in 2020 in the United States after research again, after it went to market on the human guinea pigs that showed increased cancer risk. So pancreatic, colorectal and lung cancer. And that's from a five-year cardiovascular risk study. They weren't even looking for cancer. They were only looking at hearts, given the history of um, the weight loss industry drug market. But these are serious cancers. This is really scary stuff. But it was on the market for eight years before anyone did anything. And it should be noted that it was a voluntary recall. They, the FDA wasn't like, take it off the market right now. They offered Belvique's manufacturer the chance to save face and voluntarily recall the drug. I think they do that a bit, don't they? they this yeah. voluntary recall without any admission that any that we've maybe killed people. We'll just take it off just because, you know, we feel like it. Oh, my goodness. So... In October 2010, the FDA decided that it wasn't going to approve a drug called Kismia, which is uh, fentamine to pyramate. And they expressed all of these concerns about this weight loss drug potentially causing birth defects. And then it got approved in 2012 after the aforementioned uh, lobbying efforts on the part of Big Pharma. You've got a special name for this one too, Fee. This one I like to call zombie speed. (laughs) <laughs> what is that? what is zombie speed <laughs> so uh because it's a it's a, a double header drug so we've got the fentamine part which in australia is a, a weight loss drug in its own right called duramine 
uh, sometimes ca- called ionamin, suprenza, adipex, and fasten elsewhere. And that is a central nervous system stimulant. So it's an amphetamine again, it's speed. And in that itself, affects neurotransmitters as well, makes you really jittery. And that's why it's got this reputation for being energy burning. And then the other uh, part of it is the topiramate. Now, topiramate is another type of drug that used was used originally to treat seizures, seizures and, and migraines. And they noticed that people that used the drug did lose some weight when they started using the drug for those other purposes, but a small amount. So three and a half kilos, about seven pounds in any other universe. That would be like, meh. But of course, because we're weight loss obsessed, mm-hmm. the drug manufacturers thought, holy crap, we're sitting on a gold mine here. We could, you know, we can do something with this weight loss effect. So the side effects, they think are what's causing the weight loss, as in people really just don't feel like eating because instead they've got dry mouth, constipation, altered taste sensations. Everything tastes like crap or weird, insomnia, dizziness psychomotor slowing, decreased concentration and attention, memory impairment and language difficulties. Good Lord. It's wonderful. So it's also strongly linked to birth defects. So that's fantastic. Mm. But the combination of that speed effect and the appetite blunting effect of everything tasting like crap is uh, what they package together as a, as a weight loss medication. Oh. It's, it's just not for the faint hearted, this conversation. <laughs> it's really awful. So side effects. Rare, pulmonary hypertension, tachycardia, palpitations, high blood pressure, stroke, heart attacks, cardiac arrest. So this is, these are all essentially the effects of the amphetamine component. Good Lord. Just like Fenfen. So they, when they did get approval after the rejection, um, it came with a warning for patients and also an instruction to do a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, REMS, which means they have to do like more uh, research to follow up on these kinds of risks. So this is, you know, more human guinea pig experiments that are going to come out, but it's still available. Can you believe it? I think it's just a testament to the, first of all, I think there's this sentiment that's based on weight stigma that fat people probably do need to suffer. Mm. Like obviously fat, fat people. So there's this first, the belief that what we have to do is keep these people from eating. This is not scientifically based, right? The assumption that what we should do is figure out how to suppress fat people's appetites, how to get them to stop eating. That's not scientifically based. That's a prescription for malnourishing higher weight people. But then there's also this underlying thing of like, you know, maybe they do need, obviously food does need to taste bad to them because we all know that fat people just eat too much and all the wrong, quote unquote, wrong things. And like all of these stereotypes become entrenched in the FDA approval process of medications. And I mean, unfortunately, even some dietitians still believe that if somebody has a larger body, they must be continually overshooting their energy requirements in their eating practices. But that is actually not happening. If somebody's weight stable, but just existing in a larger body, not but, and existing in a larger body, they're eating what their body needs. Like mm-hmm. that, that's the, that, that's how weight balance happens, energy balance. But yeah, this, this belief that you're wearing your lifestyle on your body mm-hmm. is so pervasive. And that is the machine that drives stigma because of the, that, this perception that it's simply a matter of choice and, you know, volition, whether you exist in a smaller body or larger body. But the whole, you know, those, they're the pins that are holding this machine together. Without Mm -hmm. those, the stigma should theoretically disappear. 
But of course, old habits die hard. Yeah. So although it's not available technically in Australia, GPs in Australia are prescribing the two different medications which are approved yeah, off-label. Yeah, so it's like off-label, mm. take them together, and basically what you get is <sighs> that. Yeah, yeah. So really, really dodgy. And I also found out that in 2022, FDA approval was gained to sell this drug in the United States to adolescents aged 12 to 17. So that's a nice expanding market for them. I just, I think, I mean, these, the symptoms, the side effects are so bad Mm. with this kind of drug that they have to be playing on the, well, let's try this drug first and let's try this drug. You know, it's, it's not that there are a huge number of people who are taking this and only this. It's that there are millions of people who try this and then it goes by the wayside because either something else is picked up or they find health at every size or whatever. Mm. But it's that there's this never-ending new market for people seeking solutions, I guess. It's got to be that usage because these side effects are dreadful. Yeah, yeah. The impact in, in actual weight change is, of course, pretty pathetic. Oh, yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> so, it's, not, yeah. it's not even a blip in a yeah. longitudinal study. Like it's, yeah. it's less than interesting what it does to weight, yeah. Yeah. And with kismia, if you stop taking it suddenly, you can have withdrawal symptoms, including seizures. Yeah. And in the States, because our we don't have single payer, so it's entirely possible that someone would find themselves unable to pay for their drug. And then unable to access it. And there may be a, what they call compassion programs, though I would point out that if you had compassion, you wouldn't need such a program, but they are where you can access the drug, but they would not be able to do that immediately. So it's possible that this could be induced in, in folks in the States because they simply would lose access to the drug. Yeah. Plus it takes a lot of personal organization to be able to find all of these different options to continue your medication supply. I mean, it, I, I read about it and it just horrifies me. We're really, mm-hmm. yeah, the Australian system is is different. Not perfect, but uh, yeah, there seems to be less loopholes and potholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's just, this is literally, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to find. I mean, you can see why this one was rejected initially before all of that lovely pharma money went into approving it. And then the last one that we're going to talk about is uh, naltrexone and bupropion, also known as Contrave. And I think uh, you have a special name for this again, Fee. Uh, This one I've called Narcotics R Us. (laughs) (laughs) So the Contrave was, uh, again, rejected in 2011 because they wanted long-term clinical trials. Uh, evaluating particularly cardiovascular risk. Um, But then, of course, after a bit of strong arming, it got approved in uh, September 2014 with a black box warning, which is the highest level of warning the FDA gives out. Um, And it states that the drug can, in rare circumstance, increase suicidal thoughts and behaviours in adolescents and young adults and can cause mania and depression to return in people who have previously suffered from those conditions and also can cause seizures and a strange condition where eye pressure rises rapidly. So what what is this magical weight loss drug? Well, this is another this is another drug that came from ideas about larger body people that aren't true. So one of the parts of this drug, the um let me just make sure I've got the right one, naltrexone part decrease it, it that is the one that's used to help people reduce their um drinking habits 
Yeah, cravings. Not hugely, mm. It's not hugely effective, but for some people it's, it is quite effective for them. But it's not, this is not a sort of blanket excellent drug for that either. But the way that it works is that it blocks people's potential to experience pleasure from food substances, right? So it's sitting there. The, so the, the way it made it into this combo for weight loss is the assumption that larger body people are sitting around just pleasing their taste buds. All day. Having pleasure. Constant, How, awful. constant dopamine hit from food. And so they thought, oh, well, this, um, this alcohol suppression drug, that might work because clearly same problems, just pleasure seeking the whole time. You think oh, actually us people that work in food and eating practices mm-hmm. for people across the BMI span know very well that actually pleasurable eating is something that is engaged in by all different sized shapes of, of humans. And large body people are not in any way different from smaller bodied people in terms of the amount of pleasure that they get from food. And they're certainly not large bodied because of the pleasure seeking part of it. So it's no surprise to me that it's not terribly effective as a drug, but that, you know, this is how stigma ends up, you know, in the research lab, in the heads of scientists saying, oh, what would be a good solution for quote unquote mm-hmm. obesity or oh, because of all these things that they must be doing. And the other bit that is in this narcotics RS drug is brupropion. And let me see what, oh, and it's an antidepressant. So mm-hmm. again, the, oh God, I'd forgotten this part about it. It blocks nicotine from getting into the receptor where it can make you feel good. So it's just that it's blocking another type of feel good receptor. This is an anti-smoking drug, brupion. So yeah, lovely. Okay, so let's just not feel any pleasure and maybe get 5% uh, weight loss, I'm assuming, which is the same as all of the other trials. And again, it's only going to be effective in people for whom that is a driver of their, a major driver of their eating behavior and their metabolic circumstances are such that their bodies at that time will, uh, you know, allow the metabolism of some of their body tissue stores. That's also not the case for everyone as well, Mm because there's a huge variability in people's bodies responses to an energy deficit but it's for those people who are whose bodies do lose weight with this drug they're the ones who are most likely to stay in these trials so the effectiveness is hugely overstated Mm. because it's not representative of the typical experience the people who enter a weight loss trial wanting to lose weight and who do not have that experience tend to not actually want to face up to the researchers because they feel ashamed that the drug has not had the effect that they know the researchers hope that it would. So it's a very human response to expectations that are unattainable, but we've got this, it's contaminated the research uh, findings. Also the fact that researchers have been allowed to simply ignore dropout populations. Like I was told that if two thirds of your sample nopes out, halfway through, you're responsible for caring about that or at least addressing it in the discussion, not semantically erasing them to make your uh, intervention seem like it has higher efficacy than it does. Correct. And intention to treat exists, right? That's a type of analysis that means that you count the people who've dropped out and you assume you don't assume anything about their outcome. You assume that there's been no change, which is not perfect because sometimes there is change, but it is not in the direction that you hope right? As a researcher. So it's not perfect, but it's certainly better than, oh, well, you know, we started with hundred. Now we've got 20. Let's just analyze those 20 because that is mm. literally the way that many weight loss studies analysis operates. And that's so mm. deeply 
like misleading in terms of figuring out what the effect of the thing that you've done to people is. Or stop the study when everybody's at their lowest weight and then use attention to treat and say, everybody, look, nobody gained weight back. So yeah, everybody. It's the way that people manipulate things that were meant to create better analyses. And within, and it's, I know it's not only unique to weight science, but it was when I first started doing literature reviews and started digging in, I was utterly shocked yeah. At, again, things that would have gotten me failed as a freshman research method mm-hmm. students that were being peer reviewed and cited by major national, you know, the American Diabetes Association and these organizations. So yeah, mm, yeah. it's, it's hard to believe. It's, it's the wild the, west. And because mm. of the uh, paywalls to a lot of these articles as well, you end up with journalists who are unable to access a full version of the paper. So they have to go on that literally mm. the 250 to 300 words supplied by the authors about the, you know, the summary of the paper. Mm. And that has a very, very sanitized outcome. And they, it is like an ad for the yes. paper. So well, it will present since. what they feel like will cause people to click through and, you know, access mm-hmm. the paper, purchase the paper. So, again, it's not representative and you cannot, I always tell my students as well, you need to actually read the method section and the results section. You cannot rely on the conclusion yeah. section. No. That is creative writing. The conclusion is, section is creative mm-hmm. writing. The other bits <laughs> are more scientific. Because the boring the, science bits, that's it, what you have to look at. <laughs> Literally the last three or four sentences in a conclusion are basically the author's hot takes Mm. on what should happen next, right? So you cannot rely on that. You need to interpret their paper through fresh eyes. Don't, Don't just take the author's word for it. No. I want to give um, a special shout out to Contrape for having perhaps the most fat phobic advertising campaign that I've ever seen on the planet, like ever. I will put a little screenshot up in the show notes, but I was showing you guys earlier the picture about Contrave and its impact on cravings. The best way to depict that um, visually is to show a larger bodied, well, not even a particularly larger bodied lady who's running and she's being chased by a tornado entirely made up of fat bellies. and belly hurricane. Yes, yes. (laughs) And she's outrunning her cravings. Thanks to Contrave. Disgusting. Shame on you. Absolutely a horrendous it's fat so shaming campaign. So condescending. I cannot even. Oh, it's it's awful. But it, it kind of gets a little worse with Contrave. <laughs> having, um, having kind of escaped their initial refusal with the FDA and then getting it thanks to kind of hustling Congress, the FDA said, look, you can do you can release this drug, but you do need to do follow-up cardiovascular trials because we need to do our um, due diligence, quote unquote. And that hasn't happened because the drug company has had a hissy fit with its own uh, parent company. So Orexigen was the original company that had Contrave, and then uh, it got sniffed out by Takeda and bought by Takeda, who thought they could make bank of Contrave. And then during the first cardiovascular outcome trial. Orexigen accidentally shared some confidential information from their trial, getting them in quite a lot of legal hot water. And so Takeda dumped them and they had no money. So this cardiovascular trial still hasn't been published. So thanks to this kind of absolute bin fire that happened after the drugs on the market, we don't even know what's happening to people that were taking it in terms of their cardiovascular risk. And given the history of uh, weight loss drugs, we really need to stick to this and, and find out what's happening. Absolutely. Next level, right? 
there's an interesting piece about like the level of research required for things. So we approved it like there's a a century of research saying most people lose weight and gain it back. There's a ton of history of serious side effects and drugs having to be pulled, but we're still giving drugs the benefit of the doubt based on a, a study that lasts less than two years. But when we say, well, what about the side effects are like, what about the side effects of weight cycling? Oh, well, there's not sufficient data to conclude that those side effects are because of weight cycling. Like, really? Because I'm looking at studies for, you know, decades. Oh, well, that's not sufficient data. So there's a real um, mm, uh, hypocrisy point. and mm. unfairness about what is weighted for approval versus what is weighted for not approving pulling a drug requiring more evidence before we say this is mm. okay, let's go. Yeah. I mean, it's a diabolical history weight loss drugs and off the back of all of these disasters. So we've literally looked at six drugs and four of them have been taken off the market. (laughs) It's it's absolutely diabolical, Uh, unmitigated disasters, the history of weight loss drugs. And And, and to summarise, they haven't been taken off the market for ineffectiveness. That would be one thing. (laughs) They've been taken off the market because they keep killing people. Yes, good point. Well, we're going to leave it there this week, everybody, uh, because there is a part two coming to this when we turn from the past into the present and we're going to dive in next episode into the world of Novo Nordisk and its push to get diabetes drugs on the market as their weight loss cash cows. I hope today has been really enjoyable for you. Thank you to my guests, uh, Dr. Faye Willer and Reagan Chastain. Aren't they just absolute legends? I really encourage you to go and find out more about both of these people if you aren't already following them. You can find Faye Willer at FionaWiller.com and you can find Reagan at DancesWithFat.org. Follow them, love them. They're going to change your life. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. I hope it has been an eye-opener because I know it was certainly when I did months and months of research for it. Thanks, everyone, for being patient with me as uh, this year has kind of slowly drifted past with no episodes. I really can't wait for the next one. I hope you're still with me. In the meantime, trust your body, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap from the crap. 